Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today for our first official episode of the new year, we're doing something a little different. I have Gabrielle Klempt with me, and she's actually going to be telling me a story. So hello, Gabrielle. Hello. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a long, long time in the making. When did you start taking notes on this book? Uh, August. But then, yeah, we but then kinda... we went camping, and then I moved, and then yes, we started working. Yeah, no, I mean, t- so much has happened since then. This makes a lot more sense now that we're kind of on holiday a little bit, have some free time. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm drinking a tea today. Are you drinking a tea? I am. I had two cups of coffee this morning, and it made me very <laughs> jittery. And uh, so I'm trying to calm myself down by having some peppermint tea. Nice. Okay. Is it the one I got you? It is. Nice. Okay. So I'm, I've chosen, I don't know the name of this tea, but my mom got it for me from a fancy tea shop in Quebec City. I think I've had it before on the podcast, but it's just like a, it's just regular black tea, but from, you know, like it's, it's specific to stuff. It was grown somewhere specific. And so that's what makes it different. Or it's maybe like a little smoky. It's just a really good quality black tea. Yeah. And it made me think of the story we're doing today is set in India for part of it. Is that that right? Yes. And Yorkshire. Okay. So it kind of just made me, it's, it's old. It made me think of like the old style tea where that's like what people would have been looking for is like where it was grown. So that's my, my reasoning. Nice. But I'll let you introduce the book. All right. Well, the book is laid out in narratives from the perspective of different characters, and they each provide us new information about the story. So it's not set up like a traditional whodunit. It's more like we're mm-hmm. the detectives and we're given all the information. Um, mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, we'll have enough information to be able to guess whodunit. Okay. And what's it called and who's it by? Okay. So it's called The Moonstone. It's by Wilkie Collins. I think he wrote it as a serialized story in... Like a newspaper? Or... Yeah. he. It was like published in newspapers around... I have it. I've it written down as published in 1868. I was just Googling it before. Okay. So that's probably when they published it as a book for the first time. Yeah. Book form. Yeah. That's what it says. And basically he, he writes in the like foreword that it saved his life, apparently. <laughs> okay. From like suicide or? No, no. He was really sick and he like couldn't like leave the bed, but he still kept oh. writing this book. It like gave him a purpose. Or something. <laughs> I see. I can totally see that. I feel like that happens. He makes duty people happier when you have a purpose. Yeah, totally. Have a purpose. All right, so let's jump right into it. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> should we, we should also, before beforehand, because this is kind of how you told me about this book, it's like the first, it was like it invented the genre. Of yeah, it's kind it. of the first of its, it's kind of the first of the mystery novel format books. Mm-hmm. And so... In a sense, I feel like some of it is you could really see where things are going to go. And I'm kind of curious if you'll pick up on them. Yeah, okay. But it's also, you know, it's its its own original story. So I think a lot of people kind of copied from it. But um, he was a contemporary of Charles Dickens and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was kind of doing this before before the big names, before even like Sherlock Holmes. Um, yeah, 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 which is really cool. Okay, I'm I'm excited. I won't stop you again. <laughs> okay, so 
The narrative revolves around the Herncastle family, and the story opens with the Moonstone being stolen from India by Colonel John Herncastle. Uh, and we're given a letter from Herncastle's cousin who describes what happened and why he hasn't talked to him since the storming of Seringapatam Castle uh, in mm -hmm. 1799. So this was basically during the time that Britain was like, yeah, India is pretty cool. I'm going to take the whole thing. Great. Thanks. This is mine now. <laughs> and they committed a lot of, you know, injustices, including stealing a lot of national treasures like the Koh-i-Noor diamond, which mm -hmm. was presented to Queen Victoria and now sits in the crown of the Queen Mother, even though... So this uh, is... This isn't part of the story necessarily. This is just like for reals. Yeah, for reals. The kind Koh of took this diamond and they've never given it back despite, you know, people asking them to. <laughs> right. Yes. And it's said to be like cursed and like a lot of tragic things have been blamed on it since it was brought to the UK from India. And that's kind mm -hmm. of what inspired the moonstone of this right. story. Okay. So the Moonstone Diamond is surrounded by a lot of mystery, and it comes from the shrine dedicated to the Hindu god of Chandra. And the legend says that three Brahmins, which are high caste priests, were tasked with watching and preserving the diamond, and that Vishnu, which is another god, decreed disaster to anyone who took it. And so the shrine is vandalized, and the stone is moved to this palace, and the priests followed it. And in 1799, when the British are trying to depose the sultan who lives in Seringapatam Palace, Captain Herncastle goes off to find the diamond and kills two of the priests and uh, brings it back to England. And so we fast forward several decades to 1850, and we learn more about the family. Captain Herncastle has three sisters, Adelaide Blake, Caroline Abelwhite, and Julia Verinder. The eldest sister... Adelaide Blake, she's dead, and she has a son, Franklin, who has decided in 1850 to set the story of the Moonstone down for posterity. And to begin, he visits the Verinder's house in Yorkshire, and the steward, what? Gabriel What's Barrett. that guy's name again? Frederick? His name is Franklin Blake. <laughs> totally off, okay. <laughs> You're pretty close, Frederick Franklin. And this is the grandson of Captain Herncastle, who is also called John? He's the nephew of Captain Herncastle. Okay. So Captain Herncastle has three sisters, and one of yes. those sisters is Franklin's mom. Got it. And she's dead. Got it. And so Franklin goes to Yorkshire, to the Verinder's house, and we meet Gabriel Betteridge, who is the steward and used to be the former bailiff to Lady Verinder. And Betteridge begins his narrative in 1848, which is two years previous. And it's a month before Rachel Verinder, that's Lady Verinder's daughter, turns 18. And the house is all excited because Franklin, Rachel's cousin, is coming to visit. And he's been away on the continent since he was a kid. So no one really remembers him. But Gabriel remembers him being a sweet little boy. And uh, he's heard that in the meantime, he's become like a player. And he's really bad with money. He has all these debts. Okay. And... So the day Franklin is expected, three Indian men and a little boy arrive at the house, and they introduce themselves as traveling jugglers. Betteridge tells them to go away because no one's at the house. And pretty soon after, Penelope, his daughter, comes running to tell him that she saw the men stopped in the road, and they put the boy into a trance, and they say, see the English gentlemen from foreign parts, and the boy says, I see them. 
And then they ask, is it on the road to the house and on no other that the English gentleman will travel today? And he says, yes. Has the English gentleman got it about him? Yes. Will the English gentleman come here as he has promised to come at the close of the day? But the boy says he can't see anything anymore. And Betteridge just says, ah, oh, they're practicing a skit for Lady Verinder, and he's, they're just going to pretend to predict Franklin's arrival, and he goes away to have a nap. So they, but they never call him Franklin. They just say the foreign-looking gentleman? They say the English gentleman from foreign parts. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And Bet- Betteridge is like, that's, that's not important. Okay. And then a little while later, Nancy, the kitchen maid, comes by him. And she's annoyed that she's going to be late for lunch because she has to go looking for Rosanna, the second housemaid. And Rosanna has gone out for a breath of fresh air. She's the new servant, and the other staff don't like her because she keeps to herself. And that's because she just came from a reformatory in London where they were curing her of her bad habits that she had growing up as a thief in London. The other servants don't know about her past, but Lady Verinder and Gabriel know that she's seen the error of her ways and they've hired her because no one else will. And uh, they feel sorry for her. Okay. And she's described as very plain looking, but she has a growth defect that causes one shoulder to be larger than the other. So she looks, looks a little lopsided. And uh, she, keeps, she keeps a big cloak that she likes to wear. And she's occasionally troubled by fainting fits. And when she has the time, she likes to go to a spot called the Shivering Sands, which turned to quicksand and quake, and it looks really unsettling. Um, and she's yeah. the only one who likes to go there. <laughs> no one else okay. goes there. Interesting. So Betteridge thinks he's going to go find Rosanna at the Sands, and when he reaches the beach, she, he finds her crying, and she says that she thinks her grave is waiting for her there, which freaks out Betteridge. Yeah. <laughs> and then Franklin appears, looking for Gabriel. And Rosanna turns completely red and asks who he is and then runs away. Gabriel is like, okay. Asks who Gabriel is or asks who? Asks who Franklin is. Okay. So Mr. Betteridge is Gabriel Betteridge. Sorry. I'll try and keep it to just Gabriel. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I find it weird to say the name Gabriel. Because you're Gabriel? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just going to write. I will not write Betteridge. I'll just write Gabriel. Gabriel. Don't spell it like Gabriel. <laughs> He's the only one with the G name, so you could just write G. Okay. So Gabriel is surprised to see Franklin because he's four hours earlier than they expected. And Franklin oh. says that he came early because his uncle just died. His uncle Herncastle just died. And he bequeathed the Moonstone Diamond to Rachel for her 18th birthday. And the mystery of the diamond followed Colonel Herncastle to England, and he survived two attempts on his life in India. When he got home, he found that, like, nobody liked him. The men wouldn't let him into their clubs. The women declined his marriage proposals. Friends and relatives avoided him in the street. But he kept the diamond, and Franklin believes that the colonel has left the diamond to Rachel to spite her mother. That's what I was going to ask. Okay, so he does. It's, he's doing it because he doesn't like someone. Yeah, he's doing it because he's trying to spite his younger sister. Got it. Who's dead? No, Lady Verinder's still alive. Oh, it's oh, it's um, uh, Franklin's Franklin mother is dead. dead. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So Franklin Blake's father was the executor of the will, but he's too busy. So the family lawyer asked Franklin to bring the diamond to Rachel instead, and because he was already coming. Uh, Hold up. So this guy just died, and they're 
this quickly? Like, we need to divide up the estate, like, chop, chop? Uh, I How don't long think, ago did he die? I, I don't think it was super recently, maybe like a week or two, but enough time that after Franklin came back from the continent and he was planning to go to Yorkshire. Okay, it just makes sense. It, it just made sense to send him with the diamond, even okay. though it's still a month before Rachel's birthday. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he's going to stay there for a month. And so Gabriel thinks it's really strange that Mr. Blake would have been the executor for Colonel Herncastle, but it turns out that there was a strange history between them where Herncastle was very paranoid about the conspiracy surrounding his stolen gem. And to stay alive, he asked Mr. Blake to keep the diamond for him in a bank. And every year, the colonel would send him a letter saying that he was alive. And if the letter ever didn't come, and he heard that the colonel had died under strange circumstances, Mr. Blake was to send the diamond to Amsterdam to have it cut into five smaller jewels and sold separately, with the proceeds wow. going to a university of chemistry. And so that the cons- so weird. So the conspirators would know if they killed him, they would never get the diamond. Got it. Is just just to be clear, I feel like at one point you were calling it Captain Hearn Castle, but it's Colonel. Oh, yes. <laughs> this doesn't matter. I just I just want to be clear it's the same person. It is. I might okay, have it's Captain. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him Colonel Herncastle. Okay. I'm fine with that. So in the end, Colonel Herncastle dies of natural causes, not suspicious, and Franklin is told to get the diamond out of the bank the bank to bring it to Yorkshire. And when he goes to get the diamond, he notices someone following him in the street. And he goes home and finds a letter with important business. So he goes back to the bank to lock up the diamond again. And again, he sees the man following him. And the third time he's in possession of the diamond before heading to Yorkshire, he sees the man again. So he loses him in a crowd and decides to leave immediately instead of waiting for the afternoon. And Betteridge sends Franklin immediately to the nearest town, Fritzing Hall, to deposit the diamond in a bank to avoid danger of leaving the diamond at the house. So he's been followed three times, each time when he has the diamond, so it seems a little suspicious, which is why he decided to come to Yorkshire early. Yeah, I'm with him. I would have done the same thing. So that's that's where we leave the diamond for now. So now there's a month before Rachel's birthday, and they're just kind of hanging out. And we learn that while Franklin is staying at the house, Rosanna Spearman, the second housemaid, starts acting really strange. And Penelope, uh, Gabriel's daughter, tells her father that she thinks Rosanna has fallen in love with Franklin Blake, which would be impossible. And Penelope saw her at Franklin's dressing table removing a flower Rachel had given him and replacing it with one of her own. Ooh, whoa. Yeah. Man, that's how I show my love. (laughs) So he would think he was wearing Rachel's flower, but really he was wearing Rosanna's. (gasps) Yeah. Scandal. And so to pass the time, Rachel and Franklin decide to paint Rachel's parlor room door. Betteridge kind of talks about it as being like the awkwardness of being rich is that you have nothing to do. And so you find stupid things to fill your time. (laughs) And um, they should have just started a podcast. They really should have. Yeah. (laughs) But like the servants are all speculating about who Rachel is going to decide to marry. And half are in the camp of Franklin, which is uh, led by Penelope. She's like, Rachel's in love with Franklin. And the okay. other half think that it's her other cousin, Godfrey Ablewhite. So that's the third sister's son. And okay. Godfrey is described as the charitable woman's hero. He's tall and handsome. He champions women's charities in London. He's super well known for his public speaking and being able to raise lots of money for his charities. 
and he's also going to come to the country for Rachel's birthday dinner. And Gabriel is, he's firmly in Godfrey's camp. He's like, no, how can any young yeah. woman not be in love with Godfrey? And his, his daughter's like, no, if you were a woman, you would know that Franklin would be the, the right choice. So he's a bad boy. Yeah, exactly. Who can't handle money. No, not at all. And you can kind of tell that Franklin is trying to ingratiate himself with Rachel. He uh, gives up smoking cold turkey. And um, he wow. seems to be in her good graces until he's visited by a Frenchman about, quote unquote, business a week before her birthday. And they have a big fight over it. And they don't talk until, talk to each other until the next day when it seems they've forgiven each other. And then on the day of Rachel's birthday, Franklin travels to Fritzing Hall to get the diamond and returns with Godfrey and his two sisters. Gabriel describes the Miss Abel Whites as the bouncers, and everything they say begins with a large O. (laughs) Oh my goodness! (laughs) So they're the they're the um, Valley Girls of the eighteen hundreds. Yes, yes, exactly. They're they're the town Valley Girls. And everyone's so excited about the diamond, except for Franklin, who's really stressed about it, and Lady Verinder, who does not approve of the gift from her dead excommunicated brother. Yeah, of course, uh, it was in spite. Yeah, exactly. And she tells Gabriel that she's suspicious of his motives for giving it to her daughter. Mm. And then later in the day, Penelope tells Gabriel that Rachel has just refused Godfrey's offer of marriage. (gasps) Yeah. No. So, Didn't see that coming. No, Gabriel is sorely disappointed. He thinks she's made the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. And then before the birthday dinner, Rachel decides to show everyone her completed door. It was just completed at 3 p.m. that day. And wow, <laughs> It took them a whole month. It took them a full month to paint the door. Okay. Um, what kind of paintbrushes were they using? Well, I think they were decorating it. I think they were painting little birds and cherubs and things. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair yeah. Enough. Yeah. Um, and the company includes the Abelwhites, uh, Rachel's poor cousin, Miss Clack, Mr. Candy, the doctor, Wouldn't and Mr. Murphy. to be called the poor cousin? Oh, she is, she's very much the poor cousin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know why she was invited, honestly. <laughs> And Mr. Murthwaite comes, who's the famous explorer that's just returned from India. And the dinner is something of a disaster. Rachel wears her new diamond in her dress, which upsets her mom. Mr. Candy, the doctor, is trying to be funny, but always says the wrong thing. No one likes Miss Clack. She's in love with Godfrey. Franklin and the doctor get into an argument about medicine. It was just a whole bad supper. Nothing works out. Yeah. And then after supper, the troop of jugglers come back, and they perform some feats of jugglery and before very long mr murthwaite approaches them speaks to them in hindi and they leave immediately sorry murthwaite that's the explorer dude from india yeah okay so he's suspicious of them is he a big character um not really okay i'm just trying to cut people out yeah but he basically explains to Gabriel and Franklin that the act that they performed was really clumsy and like a poor imitation of the art that he saw in India. And that the mm. men appear to be high caste Brahmins in disguise, which he thinks is very weird because when they came God, to high England, caste, high caste means like that's like the powerful families. right? Yeah. And I think Brahmin is, is like the highest caste you can be. It's like you're 
I don't mm. know much about um, Indian castes, but I think Brahmin is like one of the highest it's up there. of them. And so okay. in coming to England, they've like forfeited their high caste and um, there must be a serious motive for them to be concealed as jugglers. And then um, Franklin tells him about the diamond and how he was followed from the bank. And Mr. Murthwaite says he thinks Franklin may only have just escaped with his life because of the streets being crowded and um, how he changed his plans to arrive early in Yorkshire. So he thinks you probably would have been killed by these men if you hadn't taken those precautions with the diamond. So everybody, like the three of them are obviously worried that the men will come back and try to steal the stone. So they make precautions to secure the house and grounds. And Rachel's mother tries to make her put the diamond in a lockbox somewhere, but she refuses and she wants to keep it in her little Indian cabinet that she has in her room. What's wrong with her? (laughs) (laughs) and so the guests leave in the rain dr candy is in like an open carriage he's joking about how doctors don't get sick and then unfortunately he falls very ill the next day and (laughs) and gabriel can see how worried franklin is and so can i just just pause that feels like 1800s humor that the doctor (laughs) says he won't get sick yeah no like he gets super (laughs) sick and it's like okay yeah can you imagine reading that in, in like the you know serialized newspaper one week and you know at your dining room table or whatever and yeah you would crack up family. you'd be like wow what a dumb doctor <laughs> typical oh my gosh sorry that was sidetrack keep going no well so gabriel sees that franklin is very worried and so with the help of godfrey they convince him to take some brandy and water and then everyone goes to bed and the next morning the diamond is missing of course it is. Okay. Diamond is missing. Shocker. <laughs> so Rachel refuses to talk to anyone, not even her mother. She refuses to talk to the police. And um, is wrong she locks herself up in her room and stays there. Okay. And the first thought everyone thinks of is the three jugglers from the night before. And so even though the house was locked from the inside and no one who wasn't supposed to be in the house was found there... The police lock the men up because of racism and Franklin gets back from Fritzing Hall with the police and he thinks the men couldn't have been involved because they were seen in their lodgings until late in the night. And uh, then Where they went were to their bed. lodgings? Like back in town? In, in the town of Fritzing Hall. Yeah. Okay. So it, they're pretty well above suspicion, um, but they get locked up. In. Of course, because racism. Yes, exactly. And so the local police arrive, and they're completely useless. Sergeant Seagrave, he's, uh, he accuses Penelope, which is Rachel's maid, of stealing the gem. And he yells at the women for crowding Rachel's room and smudging the paint on her door. And then... Oh, my God. <laughs> and basically doesn't get anything done. And everyone's really annoyed that he's accused Penelope, because, of course, it wasn't Penelope. And Gabriel Betteridge goes to the library to talk to Franklin. And as he's opening the door... Rosanna comes out, who would never have been in that room after sweeping in the morning. And Franklin says that she had acted very strangely, and she gave him back a ring he dropped. And instead of leaving, she started to talk to him about the diamond and said, They'll never find the diamond, though, will they, sir? No, nor the person who took it either. I'll answer for that. And then she smiled and left. Okay, so this was Rosanna going into Franklin's bedroom? Into the library where Franklin was reading, I guess. Okay, Rosanna being weird in library. 
and saying that they're not going to find the person who took it. Yeah, that is strange. And so to help the investigation, Franklin goes to London and gets a famous sergeant or a famous detective called Sergeant Cuff. And when Rachel finds out that Franklin did this, she gets really upset and refuses to see or hear about Franklin from then on. Rachel? Yes. What is wrong with this girl? Okay. Yeah, Sergeant Cuff arrives and he's described as a very grim man with an incongruous love of roses. <laughs> he really loves this, roses. That feels like a trope as well. Somehow, <laughs> you know, that the police officer loves gardening. I, I totally. Yeah. He's always talking with the gardener about how he plants his is, roses. Is that some kind of like funny thing that I don't understand as I think a so. 21st century being? Yeah, because we would never be talking to our friends' gardeners about how they plant their roses with garden paths made of I grass. Wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. That is very true. Mostly because we don't really have room for garden paths anymore. I thought you were going to say no one has a gardener. But... Yeah, also that. <laughs> Actually, the house I'm living at now, they have a gardener. The In Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. She has a really I good job. A very sense. nice garden. But it's not very big. It's so beautiful with their flowers. I can't wait till you can visit me when COVID doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> that will be really nice. Ugh, I can't wait to go anywhere. Ugh, yeah. Anywho. So immediately Sergeant Cuff notices that the paint on the door is smudged. And so the previous... Uh, police officer who had noticed that who had just been like reprimanding the female servants but Cuff says that it's our first clue because the door was completed at 3 p.m the paint Mm -hmm. takes 12 hours to fully dry so the smudge must have been made between the time Penelope put Rachel to bed and 3 a.m so the smudge was made by the thief when did when did um Rachel go to bed? Like, do we have a more specific Uh, time? Probably, like, maybe midnight-ish or 11. Yeah. So, following this principle, he asked to look through everyone's wardrobes. But because the uh, police officer had put everyone on their nerves, um, the family needs to agree to have their things checked as well. And since Godfrey has to return to London, he leaves his portmanteau behind for the sergeant to check through. And, as well, to make sure all the pieces of clothing are accounted for, Cuff asks to see the wash book, which is where they record everything that gets washed. Um, You're kidding me. That's a thing. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Can you imagine doing that today? Um, no. (laughs) But also, I don't have a troop of servants who can do it for me, so... (laughs) Kind of feels like, at that point, you're just trying to find things for them to do. Well, I think like laundry was always saved for one day of the week and then you did everyone's laundry all at once yeah but i'm sure there's a reason for it it just seems ridiculous (laughs) so he wants to make sure all the clothing is accounted for and um the wash book is brought to him by rosanna and he recognizes her from london back when she was in prison for theft Mm -hmm. but he doesn't comment on it before all the wardrobes can be checked Rachel refuses to let her stuff be searched, and the sergeant has to call it off. So they don't, they check everyone except for Rachel's stuff? Well, because Rachel refuses, then the family isn't having their stuff checked, so they can't force the servants to have their stuff checked as well. So since Rachel's refusing, nobody gets their stuff checked. That seems ridiculous. (laughs) Just, well, 
it seems suspicious with Rachel, but why just check everyone but her stuff if that's really a problem? Well, because the police sergeant had put everyone on like had had kind of been rude to all the servants and like made everyone feel that he suspected them. And so they're kind of like, I don't want to cooperate with this investigation if you're just going to tell like, you know. Right. Huh. So Cuff says to Betteridge, did you notice anyone acting weird or suddenly being ill in the aftermath of the diamond being lost? And Betteridge is about to say that Rosanna took some time off because of sickness when the sergeant makes him go inside because he says he saw Rosanna hiding in the shrubbery which is Mr. Franklin's favorite place to walk. Betteridge tells Cuff about Penelope's suspicion that Rosanna is in love with him and um, that no one acted any more strangely than might be expected. So the two people that have been sick are Rosanna and the doctor so far. Yes, but the doctor's, the doctor's at home in Fritzing Hall. He, was, he drove home in the rain, and that's why he got sick. Yes, right. But he's, he's not a suspect. Okay. So far, the only suspects are the people who stayed overnight in the house, which are the servants and Franklin and the people of the house and Godfrey. And um, so next, Sergeant Cuff asks to talk to everyone individually. And two of the women servants stay a long time and are kind of have nothing good to say about Sergeant Cuff when they leave. And Rosanna stays the longest and says nothing when she leaves. So Cuff tells Gabriel he should be informed if Rosanna decides to leave the house. Okay. And um, Gabriel is now curious what the two women said that would have aroused his suspicion about Rosanna. So Gabriel sits down to tea with them because, quote, a drop of tea is to a woman's tongue what a drop of oil is to a wasting lamp. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. As as soon as I drink tea, I start... Well, I mean, that's spilling exactly where the, the tea. Yeah, that's where the phrase spilling the tea came from, this yes, book, right? Exactly. Precisely. So the two women eagerly spill the tea that Rosanna. <laughs> <laughs> when Rosanna said she was ill the day before, she was actually not in her room. They saw that her door was locked and the keyhole was stopped up and that she wasn't in it. And then the next, during the night, at midnight, they had seen a light on in her room and a fire cracking which is weird for June at four in the morning. And later in the day, Franklin says to Gabriel that he had seen Rosanna in town the day before when everyone had supposed her to be ill in her room. Okay. So Rosanna pretended to be sick, went to town, and then was awake all night doing something in her room. With a fire. With a fire. So Cuff and Butteridge go for a walk to the seashore, and the sergeant says that he believes Rosanna is acting as an agent for someone who is hiding the Wait, diamond. Who are the two people that go to the seashore? Sergeant Cuff and Gabriel. Okay. Gabriel Butteridge. Got it. So he thinks Rosanna is helping someone hide the diamond. And earlier, he had seen Rosanna go to a cottage in Cobb's Hole, which is further down the coast, and she stayed there for some time, and he thought she... With Like, when she was leaving, it looked like she was carrying something under her cloak. And then he saw her walk... This was after the diamond had been stolen? This was, yeah, today. The sergeant saw her today. Today? Yeah. Go to this cottage, stay for a while, and when she left, she was hiding something. And um, he saw her walk down the coast, and he went to investigate where she may have gone, but he didn't see her. So he wants Gabriel to bring her, or he wants Gabriel to bring him to where he thinks Rosanna might have gone to hide the stained garment. He thinks that 
she's trying to hide it. And that when she'd gone to town the day before, she went to buy new materials to make something to make a garment and that the mm-hmm. fire was not to destroy the garment but to wash and iron the new one right because you'd have to heat it up exactly he believes rosanna is now trying to get rid of the stained article and gabriel is very defensive of rosanna who he likes but he's mm-hmm. gripped with detective fever so he wants to help him ah okay so they hope to run into rosanna or find where she was going and they go to the beach to the shivering sand where they find some badly concealed footprints that belong to Rosanna. And then instantly the sergeant thinks she has been to the beach to hide something that she was carrying out of the cottage in Cobb's hole. Mm -hmm. So they go to the cottage, which is owned by the Yolans. And Rosanna is very close friends with the Yolans, especially their daughter, Limping Lucy. They're very not, not nice to people when they're misshapen. She's a, she has a misshapen foot, and so she limps, and so they call her Limping Lucy. Wow. Yeah. Um, yep. Mrs. Yoland is also excited to spill the tea. <laughs> Excellent. She's very happy to have some guests, and she tells Sorry, them... What are, the, what are the names of these people again? Just Mrs. Yoland. Yoland, okay. Yeah. She's described as... Um, having a really, really thick Yorkshire accent and um, Gabriel has to translate for Sergeant Cuff. Perfect. Checks out. And she says that Rosanna is planning to go away. She bought some things for traveling. She got a watertight tin case and two lengths of dog chain. And she spent a long time upstairs writing a letter to a friend. So is that what you would get if you were going to go traveling? Two lengths of (laughs) dog chain <laughs> yeah right kind of weird okay so they leave the cottage and cuff basically says rosanna has put this this garment in this tin case and she's sunk the tin into the quicksand that's what he thinks gabriel still doesn't really want to believe him but he's like okay and they go back to the house and rosanna is back And Cuff insinuates to Gabriel that he thinks Rachel has stolen her own diamond and is getting Rosanna to cover for her. Hmm. Okay. Um, And Gabriel is really mad at him, basically tries to punch him out. (laughs) Sweet. Yeah. He's like, I can't even believe you would say something like that. This child is my family. So. Wait, how's, how's Gabriel related to? Well, like. He's he's their like head servant essentially. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I thought. Just checking. Okay. Okay. That that makes sense. He grew up with her. Well, she, she grew up with him. Yeah. He's he's like older than Lady Verinder. He's like right, but he's been around since she was young. Yeah. He's been around since Lady Verinder was young. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So, Lady Verinder then comes to tell them that Rachel has suddenly decided to go to Fritzing Hall to stay with her cousins. And um, Cuff says that Rachel should be delayed until he gets back from visiting the village the next afternoon. And after dinner, we find out that while Franklin was in the billiard room, Rosanna came in and kind of seemed like she was going to confess something to him about the diamond. And he felt there was like some awkwardness in the room. So he kind of tries to take the awkwardness out by continuing to hit the billiard balls around. And then she says... He looks at the billiard balls, anything rather than look at me, and she runs away. Oh my. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And apparently she seems very distressed and like, yeah. 
And the next afternoon, when Sergeant Cuff returns from his visit to town, he finds out that Rosanna had bought a long piece of cloth suitable for a nightgown. And he's now firmly convinced that Rosanna had stained her nightgown when she had gone to settle the hiding of the stone with Rachel and needed to replace it. Mm-hmm. Rachel now leaves the house, and as she's about to go, the sergeant stops her and says, If you leave now, we're going to have more trouble finding the diamond. Like, we probably won't find it. And she just ignores him and says, Drive on. And Franklin runs out of the house and he says, Goodbye, Rachel. And she just ignores him as well and says, Drive on. And uh, Franklin, very distressed, turns to his aunt and says, let me leave your house. I need to leave. I need to go back to London. Okay, so Rachel's left and Franklin wants to leave. Yes. So now that Rachel's gone, the detective returns to his interest in Rosanna, but it turns out she's disappeared. And Nancy, the kitchen maid, is the last person to see her, posting a letter to Cobb's Hole, which would arrive on Monday. Okay. They Where's see Cobb's, Cobb's Hole? Is that the cottage? That's the cottage where the Yolans live. So she walked there the day before, but today is posting a letter. Yes, very odd. It would it would take way longer to, for the letter to arrive. Yes. So she wants to delay the arrival of this Something. letter. Yeah. Okay, I got a couple questions. Mm-hmm. They're not questions. They're just, you know, what's going on in my head. Yeah. So one, if she stained her nightdress, why would you not burn it? Yes. Like, what's what's going on there? And then... If she is, I feel like if you're reading another mystery and this girl was just like a pawn, someone's killed her already. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. she wouldn't be left alive. Yes. Maybe maybe that's not how things work. But then, but then how is Rachel involved? Why is Rachel acting so weird? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just think my, my thought process is just if Rosanna is a pawn, you know, why is she being left alive? Good question. So... so- she has now disappeared. Yeah. And also it's not like anyone else was was murdered. It's a diamond. It could be that whoever it is, is like, doesn't want to kill people. Although I doubt it. Yeah. Especially because Mr. Murthwaite seems to believe that the uh, three Indians who are trying to protect the diamond would, would kill for it. Yes. Yeah. And they already talked about killing um, that Franklin, like, you know, would have been killed or whatever. Exactly. So, The sergeant and Gabriel go back to the shivering sands and they see Rosanna's footprints sort of ending where the rocks meet the water. And it becomes pretty obvious that she probably took her own life. Oh, at the shivering shivering sand. Huh. Okay. And everyone is really distraught by Rosanna's death. And Lady Verinder tells Gabriel to get rid of Mr. Cuff to pay him off and send him away. Cuff refuses to take the money until he has told Lady Verinder what he believes to be the truth. Okay. So they sit down and he says that he believes Rachel took the diamond to cover some private debts of her own with the help of Rosanna. And he says that in her former life, Rosanna was acquainted with a man who would sell stolen objects, this money lender, and he believes the diamond will be sent to him to be disposed of in London. Lady Verinder doesn't believe him, but she goes to ask Rachel herself And Rachel says that she's never had a private word with Rosanna. She's never had anything to do with the disappearance of the gem. Isn't Rachel gone? So she goes to town to talk to her. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. She's just in in the near town, but she wanted to leave the house. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So Lady Verinder sends him a check. And he says he's not going to cash the check until he solves the mystery because he believes it's going to crop up again. 
Mm. Now, Sergeant Cuff, he's going to leave, but he says he has three predictions to make before leaving. One, he thinks that they will hear from the Yolans as soon as the letter is delivered on Monday. Two, he thinks they have not heard the last of the Indian jugglers. And three, he thinks they will very soon hear about the moneylender Rosanna was once connected with, whose name is Mr. Septimus Luker. Okay. I've got a question about that letter. Yeah. Is there no way that they could intercept the letter before it gets delivered? No, the Royal Post is a very well-oiled machine, Caitlin. When cannot be <laughs> intercepting letters. It would be most irregular. Uh, this whole policing in 1860 or whatever, it's very... <laughs> 1850. It's very annoying. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, no, apparently they cannot get a hold of this letter. Okay. Plus, it's addressed right. to the Yolans, so you can't just... <sighs> open someone yeah, else's letter. You would think if you were, you know, the, the important police you could, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So hopefully the Yolans tell us all. Well, yes. Yeah, so the first prophecy comes true very soon because on Monday, Limping Lucy arrives at the house and she's determined to find the murderer, Franklin Blake, who she accuses of driving Rosanna to her death. <sighs> She received a letter from Rosanna saying she couldn't bear the burden of life anymore knowing Mr. Blake didn't love her, and she asks Lucy to deliver this letter to him. And Franklin is already left to London, so Gabriel takes the letter and mails it to him there. And then the second and third prophecies come true at the same time, because in the form of a newspaper article sent to Gabriel by Sergeant Cuff. In the article, Mr. Septimus Luker has brought some traveling jugglers before the magistrate, who uh, had been disturbing his store, and um, he believes that they were causing this disturbance so that one of his employees could try and steal something. But as nothing was stolen, no charges were laid. What's what's the jeweler guy's name again? Uh, he's a moneylender. His name is Septimus oh, Luker. Okay, I'm just gonna go with Luker. But he's got like a he's got like a store where he sells things as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, any thoughts so far? <laughs> so, kind of the main thing that's going through my head is that this, if this is like the first ever, like the first whodunit mystery book, whatever, of its kind, like this is kind of starting the genre in a sense. I assume things are simpler than like, say, an egg, the Christie mystery, where things are very complicated and really trying to throw you off. So I can't tell if it's just the simple... Like all you've really talked about, who are who's in the story right now? Franklin, Rachel, Roxana, Gabriel, and Cuff. I feel like everyone else they're not mentioned enough to be like main characters. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. Maybe that 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 uh, because like the the mystery writing rules that the two what was the club called the Detection Club that Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers and all those people were in. They like wrote the rules for what you had to include and who done it. <laughs> Those haven't been written yet, so maybe it right? can be a, a unmentioned character. So, yeah, I'm I'm really thrown by if if this is just supposed to be pretty straightforward. Or if it's supposed to be, we have been introduced to all the most important people so far. We have been. We have, except for one. Uh, he's not okay. He's not. He's he'll he'll be important later in the discovery of the truth. Uh, okay. He gives us some more information, but he doesn't, he's not like a person of suspicion. Got it. Okay. Okay. So I guess 
so Franklin had lots of opportunity to just take the diamond and go, you know, disappear in some other country if he really wanted it. But maybe he wants to should like steal it and make it look like it's not him. Mm-hmm. Let you know how he could have done it. He could have got told Roxana that he loves her and you know he'll marry her if he if she helps him with stealing this diamond and then makes up the billiard stuff or whatever and or oh. you know exactly what she said. Uh, could be the very straightforward. Rachel and Roxana. I guess, why would the paint be smudged if Rachel stole a diamond? Yeah, she wouldn't she have would... to leave her own room. Yeah, she wouldn't have to leave her own room. But also, the nightgown material that was bought was, like, very plain. It didn't, there was no, she didn't buy any, like, ruffles or anything, which Rachel's nightgown would have had, you know, right. ruffles and things. So it would make more most sense. What else could a nightgown be used for? Hmm. I, you know, that, that's kind of all. I'm. That's all where my thoughts are right now. Are we at the end? Is this? We are, like, we are not. We're, we're no. We're we're entering the section of the book called the discovery of the truth, which is most of the book. So okay. So, but this is. If I was to guess, I should be guessing now because from now on in, we're figuring out what's happened. Uh, yeah. You can you can put in a guess now. I mean, Sergeant Cuff has made his first guess, and before he makes his second guess, which is the right one, I will give you a chance to. Uh, Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. This, I want to point out to uh, everyone listening at home, the Moonstone is a heckin' long book. It's, how, I how have it right beside it me. Now? I can tell you right now. It is 473 pages long in pretty small type. Like, and yeah, it's tiny his type. paragraphs are really long, you know? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not a lot of small paragraphs. It's a lot of very long paragraphs. Yeah. So you, some more background. You lent me this book originally to read and and do with someone. And then off you said, you know what, Caitlin? It's a really long book. How would I just do it? And I went, thank goodness. <laughs> this, is, this is so long. But since then, I have acquired two copies of The Moonstone. Um, <laughs> I got one and then I found another that I liked the cover. I thought it was prettier. So I bought it as well. Nice. But I've, I've not, I haven't opened them. I just thought they were, I just wanted to own them. <laughs> yeah, okay. I like the cover uh, okay. of the one I have too. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. I will take a guess. I'll I'll take, I'll say one thing. I mean, Rachel's so suspicious. Nothing she does makes sense. But also, <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like the way they write about women is like, like play them out to be super stupid. So yes. it could just be that's purposeful. Gabriel um, Betteridge does not describe women in very nice terms the most of the time yeah so I feel like like it could just be chalked up that all of her behavior is just like oh that's how women act you know mm. they're they're dumb and don't know ah no I'm gonna go with her okay okay official guess Rachel Rachel is very sus yeah okay so the discovery of the truth begins with a piece by poor cousin Miss Clack I wait a, a what a piece Poor cousin Miss Clack. Oh, Jesus. The poor cousin. We're back to her. Yeah, poor woman. Okay. So she picks up the story where Gabriel leaves off. Okay. And so this is again like two years later that they're writing all this. Yeah. Basically, okay. Franklin has contacted all of them to uh, get this story written down. Okay. And she, Drusilla Clack is like, I'm only doing this because he's paying me and I need money. Of course. Okay. And, um, 
she's very religious. She's not well-liked by her relatives. She's always talking about how poor she is and how her relatives don't care. Or she's telling everyone what a good Christian she is and how she wants to save her unenlightened relatives. Okay, I don't like this woman. Yeah, you don't. You definitely don't like her when you're reading about her, but also you feel yeah. really bad for her. <laughs> okay, got it. And she's really well acquainted with Godfrey because she volunteers with a lot of women's charities um, okay. that he helps out on, including uh, the Mother's Small Clothes Society, which takes underwear from undeserving fathers and alters them to fit their children. What? <laughs> I think basically... Uh, Wilkie Collins is making fun of all the women's charities that are all the rage at that time in Victorian uh, England. Okay. And so he's made up this really stupid sounding one because he's like, these women's charities are all not really making any difference. <laughs> okay. So he's probably a sexist. Yeah, probably. I mean, he had a wife with a lot of children and then he also had several mistresses. So. Okay. So, okay. He's a sh- bad guy. Yeah, he's he's probably not the best guy ever. <laughs> I guess no one was that great back then. Or uh, history paints them all to be pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, We, we history is a pretty tarring brush. Mm-hmm. Anywho. So uh, shortly after Godfrey comes to London, he appears in a newspaper because he was followed home from the bank one day. And he was attacked at the apartment of a benefactor. Uh, but nothing was stolen. And then the next day... The moneylender, Mr. Luker, was also attacked in the same way, and his receipt from the bank for a valuable of great price was stolen from him. So Rachel and Lady Verinder are also in London at this time, and Miss Clack calls on them to ingratiate herself. And uh, she comes for lunch, and Godfrey is also there. And he declares that he's tired of all this speculation about the assault, And he says, people believe that he stole the Moonstone and he's pledged it to Mr. Luker. And Rachel flies into a fit when she hears this. And she declares vehemently that she knows this to be false. And she makes both of them sign a statement right there saying Godfrey is innocent of the accusation. Wait, what was the accusation? So people think because of these two attacks on him and Mr. Luker that it was actually Godfrey who stole the Moonstone. Because, you know, everybody's kind of talking about this. Yeah, of course. Mystery. This is a big deal. Yeah, so everybody thinks Godfrey took it, and he's pledged it to Mr. Luker, and he's really tired of everybody saying this about him. Uh, and Rachel saying, I know this to be false. Yes. Interesting. I wonder how. And she makes them sign a statement. And when Rachel leaves the room, Godfrey burns the statement, and he says his honor means nothing. <laughs> what? And Lady Verinder says the loss of the diamond has been very detrimental to Rachel's health, and the doctors remember or recommend her staying busy in the city. And then Godfrey leaves, and Lady Verinder confides to Miss Clack that she's dying of a heart condition that she's just Who found is? out. Lady Verinder is okay. Rachel's mother. She's yeah. she's dying, and she has very little time left to live. And she wants Clack to be a witness to her will because she's not going to get anything from it. <laughs> Excellent. And Clack wow. is like, it's fine with really me. I'm, you know, this is like a good, I'm going to be a good Christian and I, I don't care, but maybe she'll like give me something. <laughs> and Aww. so she wants to interfere in her spiritual welfare. And so when she comes back to spend some time with Lady Verinder, she is waiting in the upstairs parlor when she hears Godfrey admitted to the house. And so she hides behind a curtain. And then she overhears Godfrey profess his love to Rachel, and he asks for her to marry him again. 
And he says, she will come to love him in time. And Rachel is like, no, I'm, I'm not going to. And then finally she breaks down. She says she's in love with someone else, but uh, she despises that person. And she never wishes to see them again. And she asks Godfrey if he would marry her despite that. And he says he would. So she accepts his proposal. What? Okay. Well, that's got to be Franklin. Yeah. I mean, um, she doesn't know too many other guys. Yeah. I was going to say, who else is there? Okay. So they're going to get married, even though Rachel has told him, I, d- I don't love you and probably never will. Yes. And Godfrey's like, yeah, I'm down. I'm down. And then, Have my children. Exactly. Right before they can tell Rachel's mother... She has a heart attack and she dies. So has the will been signed? The will has been signed. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mrs. Clark already witnessed it and everything. Yeah. And now Rachel's alone in the world and she's very wealthy. Yes. Very wealthy. (laughs) And the will names Mr. Abelwhite, which is Godfrey's father, as her guardian. And uh, he sends Rachel with his wife and one of his daughters to Bath, which is like the vacation town. Mrs. Abelwhite is apparently incapable of doing anything herself. And so she asks Miss Clack to arrange all their servants in Bath. And because <laughs> she's like, Miss wow. Clack is useful, I guess. We'll get her to do everything for us. So what, Mrs. Clack went with Rachel to Bath? So Rachel asks Clack to stay with them there for a while because, you know, she Clack was nice to their mother or her mother. And so she's like, I'm going to... She just needs someone. Yeah, she, she wants this familiar presence and she so Miss Clack is like yes I'm going to help Rachel because she thinks she's made a bad decision to marry Godfrey yeah no kidding because <laughs> she was hiding behind the curtain the whole time <laughs> yeah which okay I like this woman a little more now <laughs> still seems like a bad person but I like the hiding behind the, the curtain yeah and so they've only been in town for a few days in Bath when the lawyer Mr. Bruff uh, arrives and he goes for a walk with Rachel. And when they come back from the walk, she seems different. And the next mm. day, Godfrey arrives and he talks with Rachel and they agree to break off the engagement, but no reason is given for why. Godfrey immediately oh. returns to London to tell his father, who's really upset and thinks it's because Rachel is thinks she's too good for his son. He refuses to act as Rachel's guardian anymore and he kicks Clack out of their house. <laughs> because no one likes her and they all think she's super annoying and Rachel goes to live with Mr. Bruff the lawyer until a new guardian can be found because she's only 18. so weird. Yeah. Yeah that's the other thing too is like yeah she has to wait until she's 21. Yeah so she's yeah she's still very young. Um, Basically she doesn't get her fortune until I think she turns 21 or gets married. Okay. Um, And now she's no longer getting married. Right. Probably for the best. Yeah. So now we move to Mr. Bruff, uh, the lawyer's account, and he tells us why the engagement was broken off. So after Lady Verinder died, someone requested to see her will, and it turns out it was Godfrey's lawyer. And the will leaves Rachel all the property in a life interest only, which means she could live on the property, she gets the income from the property. But neither she nor her husband can, bleh, neither she nor her husband can raise money on the property. What does that mean? So that means like they can't sell it. They can't sell it. It's just hers until she dies. Huh. Okay. So in this way, she can't be taken advantage of by an unscrupulous character. Sure. So Bruff is suspicious why Godfrey would have wanted to marry. Like he thinks Godfrey might have wanted to marry her to pay off debts. 
Um, mm. And the will would have been, would have shown that he wouldn't be able to get money for marrying her immediately. Mm-hmm. He would have had to wait. And so he tells Rachel that he's suspicious of his, of, of Godfrey wanting to, you know, settle debts. And she decides to break off the engagement. And when Godfrey says, like, he doesn't say no, it's as good as saying that he does have urgent debts that need to be paid off. Oh, so she doesn't ask, she doesn't say, I'm going to break off the engagement. She goes, do you have debts that you need to pay off? Is that why you're married? No, no. She says, I want to break off the engagement. And he doesn't say, no, please, I want to marry you. Oh, I see. He's not really that upset. Because now he's seen the will type thing? Yeah. So now he he knows that she's not going to get money immediately. Um, and so he can go marry someone else who does have lots of Wow. Money. Okay. Yeah. So Mr. Godfrey, not as good as we thought he was. Yep. So Mr. Bruff also tells us a new piece of information about the Indian men. One day, he's called on by a very well-dressed, posh Indian man who asks him for a loan and presents a beautiful box as assurance. And lawyers apparently in those days were people you could apply to for loans. And so Bruff asks for his credentials and he says he was recommended by Mr. Luker who told him he had no money to lend. Mr. Bruff says he doesn't lend money to strangers and the man is about to leave but asks him a question which Bruff believes is the real reason he came to the to his office. He says he wants to know how long the typical payback period is in England and Bruff says the loan would be expected to be paid back in a year's time. So Now he's a little suspicious, and he goes to see Mr. Luker, who says that he was scared of the man, who he recognized as the leader of the three men who'd been loitering around his house before, and he said he had no money to lend and recommended the name of the first respectable lawyer he could think of, which was Mr. Bruff. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so Luker says he was asked the same question about payback period, and he also said one year. Okay. So... Now, Mr. Bruff is confused about the encounter, but luckily, he happens to go on to a dinner party later in the week where he meets Mr. Murthwaite, the celebrated traveler. Huh. Okay, so he's back in it. Yeah, and he decides to ask the traveler about his encounter, and Murthwaite excitedly shows him a note he translated. So, when the three Indians were locked up in the Fritzing Hall jail, they received a note in Hindi from London, and the police, suspicious of it, had Mr. Murthwaite translate it for him. Mm -hmm. And it says... In the name of the regent of the night, whose seat is on the antelope, whose arms embrace the four corners of the earth, brothers, turn your faces to the south and come to me in the street of many noises, which leads down to the muddy river. The reason is this. My own eyes have seen it. Ooh, okay. So Bruff and Mirthwaite conclude that the three men believe someone pledged the moonstone to Mr. Luker, and they think the diamond is in the bank based on the receipt for a great valuable Uh, And they know that they can expect the person who pledged the diamond to Lucre to come back in a year to collect it. So if somebody gave the diamond to Mr. Lucre for a loan, then they would have to pay back that loan one year later, which would be June 1849. Okay, so the idea is that someone gave the diamond to Lucre. Lucre, in return, gave them a bunch of money. How is that a loan? Isn't that an exchange? No, it's a loan because they give they, they he gave him the money and then a year later they would come to collect the diamond in return for the money plus interest. Oh, it. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So the the moonstone is there as like a like an assurance, you know, that you're going to yes. pay back what you owe. Right. 
because if he doesn't pay it back, then he gets to keep the diamond. Yes, and that that's the same as kind of any anything nowadays. Yeah, like a pawn shop. Yeah, you have to you have to prove that you can give them the money back. Yeah, and so therefore, these men only have to wait until June 1849 to get their diamond back. So the idea is that it's in in the bank, and they the only it will only come out of the bank again in a year. Exactly. Okay. So now the narrative turns to Franklin Blake. And he tells us that after he left his father's house in London, he went to Europe and Asia to forget about Rachel. And he succeeded until a letter reaches him telling him that his father has died and he needs to go back to London to take up his responsibilities. And on his way back, he starts to think about Rachel again. And by the time he's in England, he can't wait to see her. And he finds out very quickly that even though a year has passed since the Moonstone was stolen, she still doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Okay. So he thinks the Moonstone is at the heart of her refusal to see him. So he goes to Yorkshire to figure out once and for all what happened to the diamond. And when he arrives, he finds things have changed a lot. Gabriel is just as welcoming as ever, but he tells Franklin that Rosanna left a letter with Limping Lucy, which could only be delivered directly into his hands. And so the two... Oh, wait, 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 hold up. So there's an, another letter that no one has read yet that's just for Franklin? Yes. Oh, she okay. like absolutely cool. refused to let go of this letter until she could give it to Franklin. Limping Lucy said that. Yeah. Okay. And was this a separate letter from the one that Roxana said that that uh, Franklin had been the reason she'd killed herself? Yeah. So uh, Rosanna sent a letter to Lucy saying that she was going to kill herself. And in yeah. that letter, she'd included another letter to give to Franklin, but she was to del- deliver it directly into his hands. Okay. Got it. So no one has read this letter, even though it's almost a year since Wow, jeez. Okay, these people really are like, <laughs> mail is mail. Mail, mail is very important. Yeah. So they set out immediately for the cottage at Cobb's Hole because they're both like, what does this letter say? Yeah. And when they arrive, Limping Lucy is super agitated and really mad to see Franklin. And she yells at him and then hands him the envelope. So inside, there's a note saying that if he wants to know why she was behaving so strangely towards him, he should follow the enclosed instructions and he should do it alone. So the instructions are for locating the hiding place in the shivering sands of a chain at the turn of the tide. Okay. And so Betteridge and Franklin go together to the shivering sands and then they leave Franklin alone and he locates the chain in the little tin box. And inside the box is, want to make a guess? Um, the moonstone? No, it's the nightgown. Okay, With the paint stain. And a very yeah. long letter. And, oh my God. and since Franklin knows that probably the owner of the nightgown is the thief, he searches the name tag, and whose name does he see? Roxanne, uh, Ro- Rosanna. No, he sees his own name. <gasps> <laughs> so... Now it's time for some answers. So he and Betteridge sit down at the cottage where they have uh, a 10 a.m. grog, which, according to Wikipedia, is a drink made with rum and water. Perfect. And the letter is really long, and it explains how Rosanna fell in love with him when she saw him, but she knew she could never be noticed by him since she was so plain and such a, and just a housemaid. And she was extremely jealous of Rachel and she would switch her roses for the ones she had picked and she would tidy his room every day. And it was the only thing that made her happy. 
and then came the loss of the moonstone. And when she was tidying Franklin's room, she saw that his nightgown had got paint on it. Oh. And so she took it and she hid it in her room and she cleaned the paint off the house coat that he had put on after getting paint on the nightgown. And at first, she thought it meant he had gone to see Rachel in the night. Wink, wink. Yeah. Um, but then she reasoned Rachel wouldn't have permitted him to leave her room with such an obvious clue as the stain to say they had been together. So she began to suspect that he was involved in the theft. And so in Rosanna's mind, this was the best thing possible because it put Franklin on the same level as her as a thief. And she saw oh. that his helping the police and calling for Mr. Or for Sergeant Cuff as a bluff. And she faked being sick to go into town to get materials to make a new nightgown, as we know. And she wore the gown under her clothing so no one would know where to find it when her room was searched. And she couldn't bring herself to destroy the nightgown because it was the only proof of his guilt and proof she had saved him from discovery. So she decided to hide it. And she went to the Yolans and she wrote this long letter and she put it in the box with the nightgown and she hid the whole thing in the quicksand. Oh, I forgot about that letter. Okay, yeah. So... Makes sense. As she says, she hopes not to ever show the letter to anyone, but just in case she cannot make things right with Franklin, she has this as her security. And as we know, the next day she tries to talk to him, but when she does, she's brushed off or ignored, and she felt so hurt that she decided to end it, and uh, yeah. Huh. Couldn't... So... Wasn't Franklin helping to paint the door? Couldn't he have just gotten paint on a nightgown while he was doing that? Well, he wouldn't have been wearing his nightgown when he was doing that. I guess so. But maybe he was wearing it like a smock. Mm, no. <laughs> okay. Got it. Frank Franklin is like, why do I have paint on this nightgown? Franklin is... I mean, people were very proper back then, Caitlin. You didn't just wear your pajamas around the house. I know. No, you're right. That would have been the end of the world. <laughs> You didn't leave your room in your pajamas. It'd be scandalous. No. I, just before we started this, recording this podcast, changed out of my pajamas <laughs> all day. Just, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah. So while they're reading the letter, the doctor's assistant, Dr. Candy, Ezra Jennings, comes by their house with a list of sick people. And he's described as very odd looking. Uh, he's old beyond his years with piebald hair, just like black and white hair. And he's not very well liked in the neighborhood uh, because he looks so strange. I think maybe he's like mixed race or something. People in the neighborhood are suspicious of him. And sure, racism. Yes, racism. And he tells them that after leaving Rachel's birthday, uh, Dr. Candy got sick with a fever and lost his memory. And he's kind of just, he can't really work anymore. So Ezra Jennings has taken over his practice, essentially. Okay. Okay. Why is he giving them a list of sick people? Oh, because they they send food to the sick people. Ah, okay. That checks out. Yeah. So now that um, Franklin is convinced that jealous Rosanna must have shown his nightgown to Rachel to set her against him, Franklin goes back to London, knowing he didn't steal the jewel, so that he can prove his innocence once and for all. And he devises a plan with the help of Dr. Bruff to visit Rachel, because he knows that she would refuse to see him if he 
just came. Franklin just shows up at her, like, to confront her in person. And he grabs her and he kisses her face and she pulls away and yells, you coward! And she tells him she's kept his secret and it's all she can do. And she doesn't want to see him again. And instead, Franklin tells her about the discovery at the Sands and asked if Rosanna showed her his nightgown. And in reply, she tells him to stop telling such lies. She knows the truth. She saw him take the diamond with her own eyes. Whoa. So at about 1 a.m. on her birthday night, Franklin came into her sitting room, went through her cabinet, found the diamond, took it away. And she saw his face because he was carrying a candle. And she's angry. He still won't confess. So she gets hysterical. She calls him a villain. And he feels he needs to leave because he can't say anything that will change her mind. Right. So okay. he decides to take another tact. So he still wants to marry this girl. Yeah, he's like, I, I really, I didn't steal the diamond. I don't, I don't know what I can say. Okay, yes. And things aren't, things aren't looking good for him. Yeah, things really aren't adding up. And so he decides to talk to everyone who was at the birthday dinner. And he remembers that Mr. Candy was there. And since mm-hmm. he just received a letter from Gabriel saying Mr. Candy's assistant wanted to see him, he goes mm-hmm. back to Yorkshire. Okay. A lot of traveling. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of traveling. He doesn't really have a job, though, I guess, so must be nice. He's rich. He's That's rich. How it works. So he goes to see Mr. Candy, who doesn't remember why he wanted to see Franklin. <laughs> but he becomes very agitated every time Franklin mentions the birthday dinner. And on his way out, he meets up with Mr. Jennings. And Ezra says that he is sorry Franklin didn't find what he was looking for and tells him about Mr. Candy's loss of memory and his feverish ramblings when he was sick. And I've written Fun Medicine Fact, page 374. Okay, let's hear it. Uh, (laughs) Why didn't I write this down? Um, I do that too. I'll just get, I want to read the quote or something. Oh, so basically, he, Ezra, Ezra was like taking one method of looking after Mr. Candy. And all the other doctors were like, no, this is the better way to do it. And yeah, so, so they wanted to try like, uh, the sedative treatment, and he was trying the stimulant treatment. Basically, he gave him uh, a lot of champagne, and <laughs> that helped his fever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, good to know. Next time I have a fever, champagne. Yeah. So, like, two doctors were for keeping him on gruel, lemonade, barley water, and so on, and I was for giving him cham- champagne or brandy, ammonia, and quinine. <laughs> oh my god. Gosh. So. Jesus. Anyways, he accepts responsibility for Mr. Candy's life. Mr. Candy lives. And they're kind of like, okay, fine. I guess you're not completely useless as a doctor. The champagne works. (laughs) (laughs) And Mr. Jennings is like very interested in brain functions. So while Mr. Candy was sick, he had written down everything Mr. Candy was saying. Right. And trying to see if he could make any sense of his ramblings. And yeah. um, he completed the sentences, that, and he basically acknowledges that one particular thought referencing Franklin kept recurring to Mr. Candy when he was sick. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep his client's confidence, he won't tell him, he won't tell Franklin what it was until Franklin says that he is really confused about the loss of the the diamond. So basically, if you remember. Franklin had given up smoking cold turkey, and he'd been having a terrible time sleeping. So at dinner, he and the doctor have an argument about medicine and candy Mm -hmm. to prove a point about sleeping better with the help of medicine. 
gives him a dose of laudanum in his nightcap. And he was planning to go back the next day to tell him the truth about his good night's sleep. But he never managed to do it because of his illness. And so Ezra Jennings has chronic pain and takes opium every day to deal with it. And he tells Franklin that it's possible he was acting under the influence of the drug when he went into Rachel's room to take the diamond. And that maybe if he was under the influence again, he might remember what he had done with it. That's not how that works. (laughs) Okay, so hold up, hold up. Just, I got a question. So whatever the, whatever the doctor put into Franklin's nightcap was an opiate. Yes. And Ezra takes opiates every day. Yes. Is it is is maybe that's why people are so freaked out by him. <laughs> well, I think he, he he administers it in very small doses as a as um like a painkiller. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so Franklin got drugged. You you said you read uh what's that book about apples? The Cider House Rules? Oh, I haven't got I never finished it. Yeah, but the doctor in that takes laudanum. Oh, I thought he was taking um sleeping gas. Or whatever it's called. I think he was dosing this cone in laudanum and inhaling it. Huh, okay. Yeah. But anyways, okay. you know, doctors, they Go have ahead. access to these things, and I guess they're, they become users. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? Makes sense. Checks out. Sure. So now you have all the information that the celebrated Sergeant Cuff had when he made his second prediction about how the yeah. diamond was stolen and who took it. So okay. we still have quite a bit of things that happen, but... Okay. But I can try and make some sense of this? Yes. Um, well, this seems all over the place to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, so Franklin, probably drugged, we can assume he either slept deeply and doesn't, didn't do anything, or he was, you know, doing crazy things. I don't know. Drugs kind of confuse me, so who knows (laughs) what he was capable of. Uh, Rachel, adamant that she saw him creeping in. Okay, so I feel like either they're both telling the truth and he was under the influence of drugs and snuck into a room and she did see him take the diamond or one of them's lying. Like he wasn't under the influence of drugs and took the jewel on purpose or Rachel is lying about it and saying she didn't actually see him take anything. She's just saying that. That to me seems the least likely because why would she hold on to that secret for a year? Like why not just say something if, if that was going to be her, her motive of like going about things. So we can assume Rachel telling the truth and she let's say I'm gonna say she doesn't have the diamond. She was just trying to protect her. Right. Her we're we're pretty whoever. sure the diamond is in the bank. Oh we are, okay. Yeah. But did Franklin take it? Probably. But Franklin, Franklin is Franklin it. is firmly convinced that he did not take it until he hears about the laudanum. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering like either he took it and then someone else took it from him, you know, or he didn't take it and someone else took it and Rachel's confused. Maybe Rachel drank the nightcap and she was the one who lost it. <laughs> you know? Well, if you remember, uh, Gabriel and Godfrey both convinced Franklin to take the nightcap. Um, I don't remember that. Oh, because Franklin is really stressed about the diamond on the night of the birthday. So oh, okay. They- they convince him to have the nightcap uh, to help him sleep. Oh my god! 
Gosh, do they know it's drugged? Good question. So Gabriel tells the first part of the story. He's not in jail when he's writing it, is he? No. And cousin Miss Clack, probably not in jail. Bruff, probably not in jail. Franklin, probably not in jail. Rachel has not told her side and Godfrey has not told his side. I feel like, wait, but if he, so if he already got the money, he didn't need to marry Rachel. But Rachel clearly doesn't need the money either. Oh, but he would need the, no, he would need the loan to get the diamond back. So Godfrey probably needs money. Who else is there? Could Roxanne, not Roxanna, Rosanna, could Rosanna still be alive and this be all be a lie? Uh, no, Rosanna's dead. We're sure she's dead? We're sure she's okay. dead. I feel like at this point it's pointing to Godfrey. He, let's say, knew that Franklin was taking a drug and then was able to convince him to go steal the diamond. You know, even though Franklin painted the door, he... He knows that he's drugged, so he doesn't realize what he's doing. And he takes the diamond and then comes out and gives it to Godfrey for some reason. And then Godfrey brings it to the bank. And that's why Godfrey got attacked and Luker got attacked. Because the Indian high caste people slash jugglers, they know everything. So if they they attacked them, then it's got to be them. Okay. There you go. Final answer, Gabrielle. Final answer, it was Godfrey. Somehow. That jerk. All right. All he cares about is money. <laughs> so, basically, they reconduct the experiment. They they have Franklin give up smoking for a week. And okay. they, he, he, you know, he's irritable. He's having trouble sleeping. And um, they, you know, set up the house so that it's like it was a year before. And they try and recreate the setting exactly when... Rachel's birthday happened and they have to get Rachel's permission to do this and she agrees to it even though she's kind of hesitant and she really wants to be there on the night that it happens and interesting okay so Mr. Bruff the lawyer also comes to observe so there's Mr. Bruff there's Rachel and there's Ezra and they give the laudanum to and, and there's Gabriel, of course. He's always there. <laughs> and they and um, Franklin takes the takes the drink, and he falls asleep. And no sooner is he asleep than he starts sleepwalking, and he starts talking about needing to save the Moonstone and help Rachel. So he goes to her room, and he opens the thing, and then he takes out the fake diamond, and he puts it in his pocket, and he goes back to sleep. Okay. And everyone's kind of like, I don't know, that's, I mean, it's clear he would have taken the diamond without realizing it, but why wasn't it in his pocket Yeah. the next morning? So Franklin returns to London and Mr. Bruff has set a watch on the bank for Mr. Luker because it's coming close to June and they're expecting he's going to come and take it out of the bank soon. Right. And word reaches him via a small boy in his employment named Gooseberry. Excellent. Okay. Uh, he tells him that Luker has left his house in the company of two plainclothes policemen, and they follow Luker to the bank and watch for signs of the men or someone yeah. that um, Mr. Luker might give something to. Franklin and Mr. Bruff follow one of the people who turns out to be a shop assistant. Another of Bruff's men follows Luker home, and the other follows another false lead. Only Gooseberry remains unaccounted for. 
And the next day, Franklin is visited by Sergeant Cuff, who hands him a sealed envelope with the name of the culprit that he asks to keep sealed until Franklin learns the truth. Okay. And Gooseberry shows up suddenly and tells them that the day before he had followed a sailor who he had seen Luker pass something to. The sailor goes to the wharf where he talks to the steward of the Rotterdam steamboat, which was going to leave the next morning. Mm-hmm. He followed the sailor to a restaurant. Gooseberry noticed that the sailor was also followed by someone who looked like a mechanic. The sailor goes to a restaurant. Gooseberry sees a cab pull up and the mechanic talks to an Indian gentleman in the cab. Then the sailor goes to an inn and gets a room for the night. And the mechanic is discovered in the sailor's room, pretends to be drunk to get out of trouble. And this is the state of things as they stand before the sergeant and Franklin talk to Gooseberry. So Gooseberry has followed and watched all of this somehow? Yeah. yeah. Gooseberry has followed the uh, sailor who was passed something by Mr. Luker at the right. bank. Okay. And this sailor is going to get on a steamboat to Rotterdam, and he goes to a restaurant, and then he goes to an inn, and he's been followed by this mechanic who's found in his room. And uh, Sergeant Cuff and Franklin take a cab to the inn and discover that no one can get into the room of the sailor, but he asked to be called early to get on his boat. And so Carpenter is called, the door is forced open, and what do you think they see? Um, a dead body? Yes. Or nothing? So the sailor dead is body. dead. And yeah. there's a trap door in the ceiling leading to the roof. And on the table is an open box, which is empty, except for some jeweler's cotton and a piece of paper from the bank saying that it had been deposited by Mr. Luker. Mm. and it's very obvious that the sailor had tried to disguise himself. Mr. Cuff removes his disguise and asks Franklin to open the sealed envelope where he reads the name Godfrey Abelwhite. So Godfrey was suffocated by a pillow, and it turns out that he lived two lives, the public side of the charitable ladies' man and the private side where he owned a luxury villa in the suburbs, which was taken under someone else's name and had a lady living there who was also had a different name. And the villa is full of tasteful art and expensive furnitures and rare flowers. And the lady has lots of beautiful jewels and she owns sensational carriages and horses. She's like a familiar object of London life. And everything in the villa, including the villa itself, was bought and paid for. And there are no debts on any of it. And Godfrey... Huh was entrusted with the care of a trust for a minor, the boy, who was to receive 20,000 pounds in February 1850. What boy? So it's like a some boy, Godfrey is like, you know, he's well known as a charitable person. So somebody asked him to be on the trust for this boy. Oh, no. And he spent all the money? So he's he's supposed to receive 600 pounds every year. And the, the payments were continually made, but by 1847, all the money had been sold out of the trust. And Mr. Abelwhite had forged the signature of the second trustee. And so by the time of Rachel's birthday, Godfrey came to his father and asked for 300 pounds because the day for him to pay the money back to the boy was June 24th, only three days later. And his father refused him the loan and Rachel refused his offer of marriage. And so he's feeling the pressure to find 300 pounds. Uh, That's not a lot. Well, 18, 1848 time was quite a lot. I guess so. And he needs to find 300 pounds for the 24th, and he needs to find 20,000 pounds by 1850. 
So like two years later. That's a lot of money. And he's going to be ruined if he can't find that money. And so then Mr. Candy tells him about the idea for the laudanum, that he's going to slip into Franklin's nightcap. Ah. And so he's kept awake thinking about his money troubles. And finally, he's preparing to go to bed. And he hears Franklin talking to himself in the room next door. And he follows him to Rachel's room where he sees him take the diamond out of the cabinet. And he sees Mm -hmm. Rachel hiding in the shadows watching Franklin. And on his way back to his room, Franklin sees Godfrey. And he just hands him the diamond and says to take it to his father's bank where it will be safe. And the next morning, Franklin clearly shows that he remembers nothing. Perfect. Godfrey's in the clear. Godfrey's in the clear. And on June 23rd, Mr. Luker gets a visit from Godfrey, who asks if he can sell the diamond. And Mr. Luker's like, yo, I don't want that diamond. I can't sell that diamond. That's a huge diamond. (laughs) Yeah. And so he says instead he'll give him 2,000 pounds if Godfrey brings him back 3,000 pounds in a year. And so he has to accept the terms, even though they're terrible. And he tries to marry Rachel again, but this time it fails because he's not going to get money from it anyways. He tries his luck with another woman and it fails. And at last, he's left a legacy by a rich old lady of 5,000 pounds and he's able to get the diamond back. Okay, of course. Perfect. Excellent. And so... He was going to try and bring it to Amsterdam to sell it, to have it cut up into smaller diamonds um, that can be sold separately. And then he can get, you know, the 20,000 pounds that he owes to this boy. Right. But before that can happen, he's stopped and murdered and the diamond is stolen from him. Yeah, man. All right. So just a few things to tie up. We know that Indians are on a ship headed to Bombay and authorities there are prepared to arrest them. And then... No. They're not going to get it. The three men escape the boat and avoid detection by the authorities during a period of calm when the the boat is stuck off the coast of India. They take a small boat and arrive undetected. Of course they do. Mr. Murthwaite later writes to Bruff, the lawyer, to inform him that he's Mm -hmm. seen the diamond back in the statue of the moon god in the ancient shrine where it was taken 800 years before. There you go. And uh, Franklin and Rachel get married in October 1849. (laughs) Okay. Good for them, I guess. Yes. Her true love that she thought was bad. Exactly. I have some questions. Yes. Though. (laughs) Um, I don't think you can answer this one because I'm sure it wasn't tied up. But what happens to that boy who was supposed to get 20,000 pounds? Yeah. I don't know. I think he's... Is he just... He's just screwed. He's just screwed? Yeah. That's such a shame. I think then, I think they have to try and sell the like house, the villa. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna ask: is why was Godfrey keeping that a secret? Like, well, because he was he was a charitable ladies' man. He can't be living a life of sin with some woman in a villa. I see. So he really was real big into his image. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was all he had. Okay. Fair enough. So he's actually the poor cousin. Yeah, I guess. He doesn't even have God on his side like Mrs. Clack does. Yeah, although we're given the impression that when Mrs. Clack is writing her side of events, she's kind of, like, really down on her luck and, like, living in Italy, uh, which, I mean, sounds pretty great to me. But, yeah, she's, she's like, really, really poor. She's, she doesn't... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she's really bad off. Okay, interesting. Wow, Gabrielle. Can you believe you told that entire 500-page story uh, in an hour and 40 minutes? I mean, I'm impressed. That was impressive. Do you know how many yeah, words it was? Really Sorry? Do you want to know how many words that was? 
No, how many? I was close to 8,000 words. Oh my I wrote. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think I cut out a good chunk of it when I was. Yeah. Talented. Well done. Thank you. That was, a, that was fantastic. <laughs> do you want to do that every week? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> Just like reading this, when I, when I reread this book to do this, I, yeah. I was constantly like, should I be taking notes as I'm writing it? Or should I take notes later? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's tough. And then I realized this That's... morning that I had forgotten to write a whole chunk of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was really good. That was a good story. Yeah, it is a good story. It's kind of... I, and you did guess it. You you did get the right answer. So that, that w- it was interesting, right? Because that like seems to be the obvious answer but I'm so used to it not being the obvious answer that it's really hard <laughs> to just say yeah it's God read it yeah easy easy I, I think everything really clears itself up when we learn about the laudanum you know yeah it does it does it's one it's like a kind of like a trick almost exactly hmm. that yeah that was kind of the the, the trick that they've been hiding from us and as soon as you learn that then the whole thing kind of falls yeah. into place yeah, it does. I would not have guessed that about the drugs. Hmm. I'm trying to think how you would turn this into like an Agatha Christie story. Like what would be different, you know? I think the time frame would have to be really scaled down. <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the other book that I bought of, who is, this is Wilkie Collins. I bought The Woman in White. Have you ever read that? Uh, no, but it's on my list. Okay. Because I wonder... I don't know anything about it. I should look it up. If, I wonder if that's also kind of mystery, if it's similar to this one. Maybe it's something I'll do in the future. Yeah. I Yeah, because Wilkie Collins didn't actually write that many novels, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. I just, you know, saw it and bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? The Woman in White was published in 1860. Oh, so... Dickens' new magazine serialized The Woman in White from mm. 1859 to 1860. And then the book is published in 1860. So probably before this one. I, so then, yeah, Collins suffers so his it, most severe attack of rheumatic gout. From this year, he is never completely well. The Moonstone is published in 1868. Okay. So I would assume then that maybe The Woman in White isn't mystery if, if The Moonstone is credited with being the first yeah, maybe. I guess. Huh. Well, good to know. I'll look into it more. It's it's not on my um anytime soon to be read list. I've got I've got a lot of other books first. <laughs> I think the Moonstone is like his maybe his most famous one. Like okay, most well-known that's book. possible. And yeah, it's possible the Woman in White is also a mystery, but like more not as famous, just not well known. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay, I think that the Moonstone sense. was published in the uk and in america ah yeah so it would have been a bigger deal huh neat uh is there anything else you want to add gabrielle oh only that that was that was a lot i mean thanks for sticking (laughs) sweating i am i was i am sweating i get that way too (laughs) i was so stressed about this i thought it went really really well Thank you. That was the story was super clear. The beginning was a little confusing, but that's I'm sure the same with any story. 
Yeah, trying to and like so dreams. much happens when Sergeant Cuff arrives. It was so hard to just pare it down. Yeah, you did a really good job. You probably did a better job than I ever do. Uh, lies. I think you put more time into it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, quite possible. As I <laughs> did start work on this in August, I didn't touch it between <laughs> August twenty sixth and two days ago. But okay, still. <laughs> Yeah, this was good. I if uh, if anyone at home listening liked this format where someone else tells me a story, uh, please send me a message on Instagram, which is at Tuesday Night Mystery Club, or to my email, which is Tuesday Night Mystery Club at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, kind of on anything, honestly. Just tell me what you're thinking. I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to see messages from people. Thank you to Gabrielle. Thank you to my patrons who support me and this show, who are Barb McLean, Michael Borello, Debbie Kravis, Emily Shilton, and Emma Z. If you would like to support this show and get bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash Tuesday Night Mystery Club or click the link in the description of this podcast. Um, You should follow me on Instagram. I think that's the biggest takeaway you should get from all of this because... I enjoy posting pictures and I would like to, for you to enjoy those pictures as well. What else, Gabrielle? I have nothing to say other than I hope you all <laughs> okay. had a great holiday. Yeah. This I think comes out maybe the second week of January, hopefully. Well, happy so, birthday to us uh, then. Yes. Happy birthday <laughs> to us. There you go. Okay. Perfect. And goodbye everyone. Goodbye.